This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, The Ties That Bind, I'm sharing cases in which family units are so toxic, they function like cults. In the most extreme examples of these family cults, brainwashing, control, abuse, and even murder have occurred. This week's case is one of the most bizarre true crime stories I've ever encountered. After I read about it, I couldn't get it out of my mind, and I wondered why I hadn't heard about it before. Shelly Notek subjected her children to abuse, torture, and mind control throughout their lives and manipulated her husband into being her accomplice. But when a friend moved into her home in 1988, she focused her attention on mentally and physically destroying her border through an escalating series of violence and torture for her own sadistic pleasure. You won't believe this story, and to do it justice, I felt the need to cover this case in a two-part episode, something I rarely do, but felt this case warranted the extra attention. Part two will be released next Monday, but if you're a Patreon member, you won't have to wait to listen to the second part. You can get it immediately on our special Patreon VIP link. If you're not a Patreon member, you can join for immediate access for as little as $2 per month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and join. There's a link in the show notes. Now here's part one of The Ties That Bind, The Crimes of Shelley Notek. Young Shelley Notek's favorite person, like many children, was her grandmother. This was not because Grandma Anna had freshly baked chocolate chip cookies ready when Shelley came to visit, or because they cuddled together while reading bedtime stories. No, none of those things happened. What Shelley loved about her grandmother was that she was a force of nature. At 250 pounds, Anna Watson was an intimidating woman, intimidating to all who knew her in her hometown of Battleground, Washington a fitting place name for a woman like Anna to reside. Anna Watson owned and ran a couple of nursing homes in and around Battleground. She was a demanding boss and treated her employees poorly, to say the least. In order to keep their jobs, her employees were required to do anything she asked, without question. This might include tasks that in no way fell under their job descriptions, like cleaning Anna's house, washing her feet, and styling her hair. Should anyone refuse an order or do something not to Anna's liking, she would kick them, hit them, or pull their hair. One woman received an especially humiliating punishment for her misbehavior when Anna pushed her head into a toilet. Shelley, beginning at an early age, was a quick study. She was proud of what she saw as the respect her grandmother commanded. Shelley would later imitate her grandmother's cruel and inhumane actions with those in her life. In reality, it wasn't respect Shelley was witnessing, but fear. People were genuinely terrified of Anna. Even Anna's own husband, George Watson, bowed to her will. A gentle and timid man, George was dominated by his wife and treated coldly. She wouldn't even let him sleep in their house, but insisted he sleep outside in an 8x8 shed. Anna must have noticed that Shelley was a kindred spirit, because her granddaughter was the only one to escape most of her wrath. 
and in Shelley's eyes, her grandmother could do no wrong. She continued to adore Anna even when she cut off Shelley's beautiful hair. Laura, Shelley's stepmother, arrived to find the hatchet job Anna had done on Shelley. Anna justified this cruelty by criticizing Laura for not taking care of Shelley correctly. She said Laura had neglected her granddaughter's hair until it was tangled and unsightly. To teach Laura a lesson, Anna said, Shelley's hair had to be cut off. Shelley, rather than becoming angry or upset, instead sided with her grandmother against her stepmother. One thing Shelley could say in her grandmother's favor was she had been a constant presence in her life, unlike her own mother. Her mother, Sharon, and her father, Les, divorced when Shelley was young. Sharon abandoned all of her children the day after her ex-husband wed his new wife, Laura. She called the newlyweds and demanded Les take the children, saying it was his turn to raise them now. His bride, Laura, had no idea that Les had promised his ex he'd raise the kids once he was married. So in the fall of 1960, Sharon showed up on Les and Laura Watson's doorstep and handed over two of their three children, six-year-old Shelley and three-year-old Chuck. Their youngest child, Paul, was just an infant, and Sharon kept the baby with her. After being abandoned by their mother, there was no communication between Sharon and the kids, no birthday cards, letters, or phone calls from that point forward. Sharon soon disappeared, and no one heard from her, but it was later reported that the lives of Shelley and her siblings started out pretty rough. No one knew what the exact details were, but Sharon Watson was an alcoholic who suffered from depression. She would sometimes resort to sex work to make a living. One day in 1967, the Watsons received a phone call informing them that Sharon had been found beaten to death in a hotel room in Los Angeles. At the time of her death, she was living on Skid Row with an alcoholic partner. Les was told he needed to come and retrieve his now seven-year-old son, Paul, and identify Sharon's body. When 13-year-old Shelley was informed of her mother's death, she showed little interest. It was apparent as soon as young Paul arrived that he'd had a troubled upbringing during the first few years of his life. His behavioral issues were numerous, and he didn't even know how to sit at a table properly to eat. He was described as a, quote, wild animal who obviously had little to no nurturing or sense of security with his mother. The little boy even carried a switchblade. For protection or as a threat is unclear. All of the children showed emotional or behavioral issues in some form. Chuck had always been the silent one, and Shelley jumped in and spoke up for him whenever he was addressed. She became very controlling of her younger brother, and Chuck always let Shelley lead him around. Despite the other children's issues, Laura, her stepmother, would say that Shelley was the most difficult one of the siblings to handle. Shelley expressed her hatred of her stepmother on a daily basis. She played cruel pranks on others just for fun, like putting broken glass into her siblings' shoes. Shelley would never give an inch to anyone and manipulated people and situations around her at all times. She would resort to just about anything to get her own way. This included lying and stealing. Even though her father treated Shelley like a princess and gave in to her every whim, she would still take whatever she wanted without asking and stole from friends and family alike. She was never satisfied with anything, and whenever she was caught doing something wrong, she found a way to blame someone else for her actions. As Shelley got older, her constant lying, attention-seeking, and just plain meanness almost caused the destruction of her family. In March of 1969, just before her 15th birthday, 
Shelly accused her father of raping her. She told someone at her school that something was going on at home that she couldn't take anymore. When Shelly didn't arrive home from school that day, her stepmother called looking for her. She was informed by the school principal that Shelly was in a juvenile detention facility and gave no further details. Laura called Les and they rushed down to the facility to find out what was going on. When they arrived, the Watsons learned that they were being investigated regarding Shelly's accusation of rape against her father. The facility superintendent wouldn't allow them to speak to Shelly. The Watsons left, vowing to have Shelly examined by their own doctor to prove she was lying. That night, Laura returned home and searched Shelly's room for any indication of why she would make up such an outrageous lie. She found a True Confessions magazine hidden under Shelly's mattress. The cover featured a story titled, I Was Raped at 15 by My Dad. Laura showed it to her husband. Les was stunned, not only that his daughter, the girl he'd always gone to bat for no matter what she put him through, and the one he treated like a princess, would do something so evil for, what, attention? The next day, Shelly was transported to the hospital where she was examined by her pediatrician. Afterward, he reported that Shelly Watson was, in fact, a virgin. When she was called on her lie, she didn't react at all. She showed no remorse for her actions or how much the accusation might have damaged her father. She never admitted to lying about it, but simply returned home and acted as if nothing at all had happened. At this point in her life, Shelly had become persona non grata with just about everyone. Her own school, Battleground High, wouldn't let her return after learning about the false accusation against her father. None of the other schools Les and Laura attempted to enroll her in would take her on either, once they learned of Shelley's record of misbehavior. Laura's parents, who lived in Hoodsport, Washington, offered to take the teen in to help their daughter and son-in-law. However, Shelley's behavior was no better with them. Her step-grandparents noted a, quote, mean streak in her. She was manipulative, offering to help people out, but always managed to turn the situation around to hurt others. After offering to help her step-grandmother with the dishes, Shelly threw them in the garbage instead. She offered neighbors free babysitting, saying that she just loved children. But when the parents returned home, the children reported being bullied, struck, and barricaded in their rooms by the babysitter. Shelly was finally sent packing after she accused Laura's father of, quote, messing with her. At her wit's end regarding her stepdaughter, Laura Watson would later say, I didn't understand Shelley's constant need to try and ruin other people's lives. Once the school year ended, Shelley returned home to Battleground. Her parents finally found a school that would take her. She began the next school term at a private Catholic boarding school, St. Mary of the Valley in Beaverton, Oregon. This placement, however, would not last. Just weeks into the school year, the nuns asked Shelley's parents to pick her up on the weekends as she was a disruption for teachers and other students alike. Some of the issues cited included Shelly waking up and screaming in the middle of the night, stealing other students' homework and destroying it, and, an old chestnut, placing broken glass in her classmates' shoes. Needless to say, she wasn't welcomed back for the next year. After returning home, Shelly found another sympathetic family member to manipulate. A beautiful young woman now with wavy auburn hair, a fair freckled face, and a dimpled smile, Shelly could be quite charming when she wanted to be. She was an expert at wrapping people around her finger. She began calling her Aunt Katie, Les's sister, and hinting that things weren't so great for her at home. She was able to convince her aunt over time that her father and stepmother verbally abused her and treated her very unfairly. 
Feeling sorry for the girl, Katie and her husband Frank extended an invitation for Shelley to visit them over the summer in Murraysville, Pennsylvania. Perhaps realizing she was running out of options, Shelley was on her best behavior with her aunt and uncle over the summer. In this way, she was able to convince them that her parents were abusive and wrangle an invitation to live with them permanently. Katie called Les and Laura and said they would keep Shelley and enroll her for the next school term in Pennsylvania. I'd imagine that after Les and Laura Watson finished doing a happy dance, they agreed to let Shelley stay in Murraysville. Shelley was enrolled at Franklin Regional High School in Murraysville for her senior year. 17-year-old Shelley met handsome, dark-haired Randy Rivardo soon after arriving. He fell for the curvy brunette right away, and they began dating. However, they would go their separate ways after graduating in 1972. Shelley moved back to Washington, and Randy stayed in Pennsylvania to earn money for his college tuition. But that summer, Shelley contacted Randy to tell him her father had offered to give him a job, working as a maintenance man in one of her family's retirement homes. He and his mother Anna owned and ran two of these businesses. To sweeten the offer, Shelley told Randy he would also be provided with a rent-free apartment. It was a good offer and would allow Randy to save money for college quickly, so he packed up and moved to Battleground, Washington. Little did he know that the family was already planning his and Shelley's wedding. To Shelley, it didn't matter that Randy hadn't expressed an interest in getting married and that they weren't even engaged. What Shelley wanted, Shelley got. She told her father she loved Randy and he loved her. By the time Randy arrived in Washington to start his new job, wedding plans were already in the works. Feeling trapped by the situation and the pressure he felt from Shelley and her family, Randy gave in. He allowed himself to be fitted for a tux and showed up at the church on the designated day. His life had all been planned out for him by Shelley. Both the bride and groom were just 19 years old. None of Randy's family attended his wedding because Shelley had conveniently failed to mail their invitations. Shelley Watson, now Rivardo, married her 19-year-old groom in 1973. The couple moved into a 40-foot trailer owned by Shelley's father and stepmother. Soon after moving in, Shelley began expressing how much she hated living in the trailer and pressured her husband to move her into a house closer to town. He told her repeatedly they couldn't afford it. Shelley had already decided once she was married, she would live a life of leisure. Previously, she'd worked as an orderly in a nursing home, putting the skills she'd learned working for her family to use. But as soon as she became Mrs. Rivardo, Shelley started calling in sick with, quote, female troubles. As a result, she was let go from several nursing homes, including the one owned by her father. Shelley just refused to show up for work, and he had no choice but to fire her. Randy, staying true to his desire to go to college, was taking classes at Clark College on top of holding down a job. Shelley was at home doing nothing. She refused to help out with chores and let Randy do all the cooking and cleaning. Instead, Shelley spent her time shopping in town. The checks she wrote bounced, and to keep her out of jail, her husband had to use his meager savings to pay off his wife's debts. Shelley continued to lie and make up crises for attention. She once faked an overdose of pills and alcohol when her father refused to buy her a Volkswagen bug she coveted. Rushed to the ER, doctors discovered she'd only taken a few aspirin and nowhere near the amount of a lethal dose. 
Randy returned home from work one day to find Shelly bloodied and on the floor. She claimed that she'd been raped. However, after the sheriff investigated the incident, he reported that Shelly's injuries were self-inflicted. Shelly cried rape to convince her family that her neighborhood was dangerous. She thought she could scare them into moving her into a cute house close to town, instead of the cruddy trailer she hated. Nothing was ever good enough for Shelly. Despite their marital struggles, Shelly and Randy became parents in 1975. Their daughter Nikki was born in February of that year. Shelly took the baby and moved in with their parents in Vancouver so they could teach her how to care for the newborn. She was supposed to stay for just three months, but she continued to extend her time in Vancouver. Meanwhile, she was out most days meeting up with friends to hang out while her stepmother took over the care of the newborn. Laura didn't mind, however, and she quickly became attached to her granddaughter. Randy finally put his foot down and insisted his wife and child return to battleground. Laura began making the 40-minute drive every day to check in, not trusting Shelley to care for the child properly. Unable to get her husband to give her everything she wanted, Shelley turned on Randy. She began locking him out of the house, and no amount of threats or pleading could make her change her mind. Randy spent many nights sleeping in his car. Shelley became more controlling and used lies, threats, and manipulation to wear down her husband's will. She demanded he hand over his paycheck to her, and when he finally did to stop her constant haranguing, she'd spend it any way she liked. When he began standing up for himself, Shelley talked her father, Randy's employer, into sending his paychecks directly to her. Randy finally accepted the fact that his wife was never going to change. If he allowed things to continue as Shelley wanted, he'd end up broke, with no education, working a low-paying job, and with Shelley running his life. Randy called his parents and asked for airfare to return to Pennsylvania. When Shelley realized that her husband had really left her, she called him repeatedly and apologized. She promised that things between the two of them would get better, and she vowed to change. She said she wanted to come out to Pennsylvania with the baby to work things out. Randy missed his daughter and worried for her, so against his better judgment, he agreed. Shelley wasn't in Pennsylvania for long before her antics, selfishness, and bad behavior was once again on display, this time in front of Randy's family. Now seeing firsthand what their son had been going through, the Rivardos gave him their blessing to file for divorce. They sent Shelley packing back to Washington. Angry at being rejected, Shelley sought revenge by opening up credit accounts in Randy's name all over town, which put him into even deeper debt. She even forged his signature on their income tax refund and spent that money too. Then, Shelley disappeared. Shelley's marriage was short-lived when she was unable to completely bend her husband Randy to her will. Recognizing that his wife was toxic and unwilling to change even a little bit to make life bearable, he ran as far away from her as possible. One day, Shelley left baby Nikki with a relative and never returned. After a few days with no word from her, the young relative contacted Laura, who'd been trying to get a hold of Shelley for some time. Laura was informed that Shelley had up and left, leaving Nikki behind. She picked up the baby and took her home. Les and Laura didn't hear from Shelley for nearly a year. Then one day out of the blue, Shelley returned for her daughter. Laura especially had grown very attached to her granddaughter. When Shelley returned, she was devastated at having to give up the child. Shelley took the baby and moved to Vancouver. She would later craft the story that she repeated to Nikki as she grew up. Her father had abandoned them, Shelley told her daughter with tears in her eyes. 
She also said that Nikki's paternal grandparents didn't love her and had rejected them both. Sharing this false family history with her daughter served Shelley's purposes to make Nikki completely dependent on her alone. She was the only one who really loved Nikki, Shelley repeatedly stressed to her daughter. This was, of course, a lie. Nikki's grandma, Laura, loved her greatly and would have done anything to keep her and raise her in a stable home. But even after abandoning her daughter and returning only when it suited her, Shelley swooped in and, as usual, didn't consider the consequences of her actions. The toddler, who didn't even know her mother at that point, was whisked away from the only family she'd ever known. But the cruel lies Shelley would tell her daughter didn't end there. Later as a teen, Nikki would discover a stack of cards and letters sent to her from her father and grandparents in Pennsylvania. Her mother had kept these correspondences filled with messages of love for Nikki from her daughter, allowing her to believe that she had been abandoned and unloved by her father. everybody this is wendy and beth from fruit loop serial killers of color in our podcast we tell the fascinating stories of true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that often go untold by the mainstream media well because the news is racist <laughs> allegedly as we dive into these cases we get a chance to go into the historical and cultural context of the crimes and criminals in order to get a sense of what might have influenced the perpetrators and led to the crimes and guess what what <laughs> We're going to be at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas, Woo! and we are going to get to meet Esther of Once Upon a Crime. <laughs> you should come hang out with us and Esther on Podcast Row. We really hope to see you there. It's going to be a blast. Viva Las Vegas. While Shelley Notek had been able to manipulate and control most of the men in her life, her second husband didn't prove to be as passive or easily controlled. Danny Long was a neighbor who lived across the hall from Shelley in Vancouver. He was attracted to the pretty single mom, and before long, he was living most of the time in Shelley's apartment. Right away, Shelley told her two-year-old to call Danny Daddy. This would become a pattern. Throughout her children's lives, whenever she had a new boyfriend, Shelley would insist her kids refer to the new man as dad, further destabilizing their lives with revolving fathers in and out of their home. Shelley's beloved grandmother, Anna, had passed away, leaving Shelley a house she'd promised to her when she was just a girl. Shelley and Danny moved back to Battleground and into the inherited house. Shelley became pregnant and she and Danny married on June 2, 1978, when she was 24. In August, her second daughter, Samantha, was born. Danny was good to the girls, and Nikki would think of him as her dad, but he and Shelley fought often, both verbally and physically. The marriage would last just five years before the couple filed for divorce, ending their union in 1983. Now 29, Shelley still hadn't grown out of her vindictive nature or pettiness. She hid Sammy from Danny so he couldn't see his child, and even went so far as to change her name to Sammy Joe making it more difficult for Danny to locate her. Shelley would meet her third husband while she was still going through the divorce from her second. In April 1982, Dave Notek spied the pretty brunette across a crowded bar in Long Beach, Washington, and was immediately drawn to her. Shelley was a world-class flirt and was skilled at attracting men to her like a moth to a flame. She burned them just as quickly, too, but they couldn't know that when they first met her. 
She showered them with attention, sending out teasing vibes that made them believe she was really into them. But she just as quickly cooled towards them, making them chase her. Chasing a girl like Shelly was a heady cocktail for a man who liked a challenge. Dave Notek wasn't really looking for a challenge, but for Shelly, he was willing to jump through hoops. Dave's personality was the opposite of Shelly's. He was mild-mannered, responsible, and hardworking. Raised in Raymond, Washington, Dave Notek graduated high school in 1971, then went to work as a logger before enlisting in the Navy. During his time in the service, he was stationed in Hawaii and Alaska and was trained to operate heavy equipment. Returning home to Washington, he took these skills and got better-paying jobs in the timber industry. Now an eligible bachelor, Dave Notek had a few serious relationships, but none stuck. When he met Shelley, he was immediately attracted to her self-confidence, something that he lacked. Shelley's self-assurance and bold personality made her sexy as hell to Dave Notek. So, on the first night at the bar, he screwed up his courage to talk to her and was surprised and delighted when she showed interest in him. Soon, he was visiting her and the girls regularly. He was smitten not only with Shelly, but also with her girls, six-year-old Nikki and four-year-old Samantha. Dave would do anything for Shelly and her girls. Not long into the relationship, Shelly told Dave she had cancer. She said the prognosis was grim and that she probably wouldn't live to see 30. He was devastated. Of course, this was a lie. Why she lied is a mystery. Perhaps she was just so used to manipulating men and creating drama, she couldn't help herself. But Shelly already had a purpose for hooking Dave Notek. She was on the brink of losing the house her grandmother left her, unable to come up with the money she needed to pay the taxes or the balance of the loan payments. Her plan was to quit claim the deed over to Dave Notek in an attempt not to lose it to the bank. But while Dave had a good job, he was unable to afford what was owed, and the house ended up in foreclosure anyway. In the meantime, Shelley had convinced him that she was a damsel in distress, saying she and her children had no close family to help them. Dave, already in love, vowed to do anything Shelley needed. That's when she hit him with the cancer story. It may have been just one more emotional manipulation to ensure that Dave would be desperate to help her, to save her, do anything for her. Later, Shelley would put Dave's love and loyalty to the test in ways that no one could have imagined. Shelley married her third husband, Dave Notek, on December 28, 1987. She was still claiming to be ill with terminal cancer, but became pregnant with her third child, Tori, in 1989. At first, she said getting pregnant was a miracle. As her pregnancy progressed, Shelley pretended to go through treatment, even having Dave drop her off at the hospital for radiation treatment, but never allowing him to go inside with her. Eventually, she claimed to be cured, and Dave was none the wiser, apparently. The family dynamic was similar to that of Shelley's grandparents. Dave was submissive to his wife at all times. Nikki would later recall how her stepfather was worn down in increments by her mother until he no longer resembled an autonomous human being. He became completely dominated by Shelley. He even became suicidal at times when Shelley wouldn't stop berating and criticizing him and he could do nothing to please her. She called him names like pathetic and worthless and said he was a sorry excuse for a man. She screamed at him and locked him out of the house when he didn't bring home enough money to suit her. Dave would keep a sleeping bag and provisions in his truck, not knowing if he'd be allowed into his house when he returned home from work. It just depended on what kind of mood Shelley was in that day. Then there were other times when she could be fun, loving, and make him fall in love with her all over again. But those times never lasted long. 
Dave was constantly walking on eggshells around his wife. Shelly began isolating Dave and her daughters from others, including their own extended family members. While Shelly had always been verbally abusive to her daughters, the physical abuse of the children didn't begin in earnest until they moved to Walipa, Washington. The Notex rented a large craftsman-style home known as the Louderback House by town locals. No one in Shelly's family knew what would set her off. Sometimes it was something small, like the girls forgetting to put away a hairbrush. Sometimes it was nothing at all, or at least nothing the girls could identify, but the physical abuse escalated over time. Shelly first punished the girls by slapping them, pulling them by their hair, and calling them fucking little bitches. She later started beating Nikki and Sammy with objects, sometimes until they were bloody. Nikki was singled out for the worst abuse. Her mother would lock her in her room using a butcher knife shoved into the door to keep her pinned inside. As you can imagine, this was even more terrifying to the child than just hearing a key click into a lock. Shelly told Nikki she couldn't stand the sight of her, and that's why she was being locked in the closet. There, Nikki would remain for days or even weeks with only a bucket to use as a toilet. Nikki said being locked away was actually a reprieve for her as she was no longer in her mother's sight line and subjected to her beatings at a whim. Her sister would come and sit by the door and talk to her when their mother wasn't home. She would share with Nikki the news of the day, fill her in on her favorite shows, or share schoolyard gossip just to keep her occupied. The abuse got progressively worse when Shelly enlisted Dave to join her in punishing the girls. One of Shelly's favorite punishments involved exposing her children to the harsh Washington winters. The girls were often woken up in the middle of the night, forced down the stairs, and then made to stand outside in the freezing cold weather in only their pajamas. Sometimes Shelly added another level of cruelty and abuse to this punishment. She would instruct Dave to throw buckets of water on the girls while Shelly shouted wallow at them. Shelly loved to call her daughters pigs, and she now required them to roll around in a muddy hole dug for this purpose. She called them pigs and said pigs wallowed in the mud. Sometimes they'd be subjected to this punishment for a few minutes, but sometimes they were left outside wet and freezing for hours. Shelly's physical abuse continued to escalate, and at times, the girls were seriously injured. She once shoved Nikki hard, causing her to fall through a glass door. As blood dripped from Nikki's head when she was cut by the glass, Shelly just looked at her disgusted and said, Now look what you made me do. But later that night, she gave Nikki a warm bath, apologized, and lovingly washed and styled her hair. She took Nikki out to dinner and was funny and charming, sharing stories and secrets with Nikki and telling her all about the time it was just the two of them against the world after Nikki's father, quote, abandoned them. This type of love-bombing behavior was a strategy Shelley would employ after her abuse went too far and she feared some sort of reprisal. In this way, she was able to throw her victims off balance. Instead of becoming angry at Shelley and fighting back, they learned to crave her approval and came to believe that if they just did what Shelley wanted, they could please her and earn her love. Of course, this never happened because there was no pleasing Shelley. Sammy, four years younger than Nikki, found a way to avoid some of her mother's abuse. While she was sometimes still a target of Shelley's violence, Sammy learned how to work her mom in order to avoid the brunt of her anger. She would sweet-talk Shelley to get back into her good graces. Nikki theorized that one reason why Sammy didn't receive as much abuse as she did was because Sammy was popular and had more friends. 
Shelley was always worried about people outside of her home learning what was going on behind closed doors and did everything she could to avoid anyone finding out. Maybe it crossed her mind that Sammy would tell on her, Nikki noted. Nikki, however, would sometimes fight back with her mom, and that would make the abuse worse. Shelley also liked to pit the girls against each other, playing favorites, or having one of the girls tell on the other to avoid punishment themselves. This was another way to keep the girls from talking. If she made them accomplices in the abuse, they were less likely to want to share the secret with anyone. In the end, no one knew about the abuse, not even their grandmother Laura or grandfather Les. The girls remained silent. Shelley's younger brother Paul had continued to live a troubled life. He had been in and out of jail for various offenses most of his life. In 1988, Paul was once again serving time in jail, and his 16-year-old son Shane Watson landed on the Notech's doorstep with nowhere to go. Shelley welcomed her nephew with open arms, but Dave wasn't so keen on having the boy move in. Of course, Shelley made the decision to give Shane a place to stay without her husband's approval. She immediately began love-bombing Shane. Shelley furnished and decorated a room just for him. Shane had never had his own room before and had rarely even had a stable place to live. Shelley took him shopping for new school clothes and let him pick out anything he liked. He was a bit of a metalhead and preferred black jeans and metal band t-shirts. Shelley was happy to provide these for him. Shane was also excited and grateful to be with his Aunt Shelley and his cousins. To him, the Notech seemed like a stable, secure, normal family, something he'd always wanted. At Shelley's insistence, it wasn't long before Shane was calling Shelley and Dave mom and dad. It's also important to note that soon after Shane moved in, Shelley applied for Department of Social Services benefits for him and began receiving a monthly check for housing the teen. But this period of tranquility in young Shane's life did not last long. Shelley started assigning her nephew an endless amount of chores to do and punished him for not completing them on her timetable or failing to do them to her satisfaction. His punishments included taking away his every other week shower privileges, removing all his bedding from his room, and making him sleep on the floor. She also took away all the clothes he owned and left him with only one set to wear. On account of this, Shane began arriving at school dirty and disheveled, something which embarrassed him greatly. Shelley also began bullying and berating him the same way she did with her husband and girls. She yelled at him and said he was worthless and finally told him she couldn't stand looking at him. She moved him out of his bedroom and forced him to sleep in the basement with just a mattress on the floor. Shane and his cousin Nikki began talking and confiding in one another. The teens were close in age, and enduring the same treatment, they found time to talk in secret as a way to cope with the madness Shelley inflicted upon them. She began to notice this friendship and to break their connection as well as for her own entertainment. Shelley began giving them bizarre punishments for minor offenses. One of these was forcing them both to strip off their clothes in the living room and slow dance together naked. While the embarrassed teens cried, Shelley rounded up the rest of the family to watch while she made fun of them. She often included an element of humiliation as part of the punishments she doled out. We must take a moment to contemplate why Shelley was so fixated on including nudity in her punishments. We'll hear about more examples later, but in addition to the nude slow dancing, she forced both Nikki and Shane to sit nude on a hill behind the house while temperatures were frigid. Torture and humiliation for Shelley appeared to go hand in hand. Is it possible that, as some have theorized, in the first five years of her life, Shelley was aware and maybe even witnessed her mother performing sex work, 
In her young mind, did she link sex and nudity to humiliation? Or did she conclude that sex was something her mother should have been punished for? If so, maybe these early life experiences melded together as elements she employed to abuse her family members and later her friends. In Wallapa, Washington, Shelley Notek befriended a 30-year-old hairdresser named Kathy Loreno. Kathy had not had an easy time growing up, but she always possessed a certain zest for life. She stood at six feet tall and had a big hearty laugh and loved to play softball in her free time. And Kathy hadn't had a lot of free time in her life. Her mother and father were divorced when she was just a girl, and she and her siblings bounced around Southern California in their early years. Kay Thomas, Kathy's mother, worked as a hairdresser and was married and divorced and married and widowed more than once. Kathy, always a hard worker, who was also described as a people pleaser, decided to follow in her mother's footsteps after graduation and attend cosmetology school. She wanted to help support her family and knew her mother did a good trade as a hairdresser. Kathy also liked people and her social nature lent itself well to chatting with clients as she cut and styled their hair. In the summer of 1977, Kay told her kids that they were moving to Washington State on a whim. Kathy was 18 and in the middle of her cosmetology training, but a dutiful daughter, she transferred her credits to a school in Aberdeen to finish her training and earn her hairdresser's license. In 1988, Shelley met Kathy at the salon where she worked and quickly learned her story, that she was single, was struggling to make ends meet as a hairdresser, and that she jumped through hoops to help her mother and siblings even when she didn't have much herself. Kathy was a giver and, well, Shelley was a taker. Shelley saw the potential of making Kathy her best friend and that she could be easily manipulated. At first, Shelley was like a best friend to Kathy. She made herself indispensable to her, listening to her problems, purchasing small items for her, and taking Kathy's side whenever she was annoyed or angry with her mom or siblings. Kathy didn't need them, Shelley would tell her. She was too nice, too kind. She was being taken advantage of. Kathy felt supported and cared for by her new friend, Shelley. Before long, Kathy Lorena was Shelley's biggest fan and strongest supporter. She believed Shelley's story about being diagnosed with cancer, even when Shelley's stepmother told her it was all bullshit. That Christmas, Shelley announced to Dave and the girls that her friend Kathy was moving in with them. Shelley had continued to poke at a disagreement Kathy was having with her mother about someone Kathy was dating. Her mother didn't like him, and Shelley made sure to stir the pot until Kathy, who was giving most of her paycheck to help her mother out with the rent and household expenses, decided to take Shelley up on her offer to move out. Kathy had periodically babysat for Shelley, and the girls loved her, but noticed that she always took their mother's side, no matter how unreasonable Shelley was. She told the girls they should appreciate their mother more and be grateful for such a great mom. They would roll their eyes in secret, while Kathy looked at Shelley adoringly. Like I said, Shelley Notek could really turn on the charm when she wanted to. And what Shelley wanted was Kathy, newly unemployed, to take over all the household chores and be her full-time babysitter. Shelley's third daughter, Tori, was born just after Kathy moved in. Having recently lost her job at the salon, Kathy transferred all her time and energy into serving Shelley. But as soon as Shelley had Kathy under her thumb, her pattern soon emerged. She became demanding and put impossible demands on her new boarder. Kathy tried to please her friend, but nothing was ever good enough. Shelley's treatment of Kathy became worse as the days passed. There was no extra bedroom for Kathy when she moved in, so Shelley cleared a space on the landing where she would sleep, conveniently located near the girls' rooms. 
Kathy would be the one to get up with the newborn, get the girls ready for school, and do all the chores not assigned to Shane or the girls. Feeling obligated to the no-techs since she was living with them rent-free, Kathy jumped to do whatever Shelly wanted. But Shelly turned her wrath onto Kathy whenever she was displeased. Like with her own girls, she started by hitting Kathy with objects, reminiscent of the abuse her grandma Anna had subjected her employees to. She then started putting her hands on Kathy, pulling her hair, pushing her to the ground, and even kicking her when she was on the floor. The girls watched all of this in horror and amazement that Kathy, much bigger and stronger than their mom, put up with it. But Shelly would always convince Kathy that she'd brought the beatings upon herself. It would be Kathy who ended up apologizing. Shelly would give her friend a hug and a handful of sedatives to calm her down. The more abuse Kathy received, the more pills Shelly gave her. It was another way she gained control over Kathy. Shelly also subjected her friend to psychological torture. She accused Kathy of sleepwalking, telling her there was food missing from the kitchen and that Kathy had eaten it while asleep. Kathy said she hadn't taken the food, but Shelly told her she had, but just didn't remember it. Even so, Shelly punished her for this fictitious sleep snacking. Shelly would also later claim that Kathy had entered Shane's room in the middle of the night naked. Kathy was horrified and said she would never do such a thing. Kathy, I know you want him, Shelly accused, but this is totally inappropriate. Kathy was mortified. Shelly called her sick in the head and said she was a pedophile who needed help. Making these types of accusations was a way to shame and humiliate her friend. Shelly knew that Kathy's self-esteem was already weak, and so she capitalized on this for her own selfish reasons. Little by little, Shelly tore down her friend's sense of self until Kathy was under her complete control. She took away Kathy's possessions, leaving her with just a single change of clothing. Later, she even took away these clothes and humiliated her by making her walk around the house and do her chores in just her bra and underwear. The next humiliation for Kathy was making her do chores in the nude. Shelly told Kathy she could no longer live in the house and moved her down to the basement where she was forced to sleep next to the boiler. Shelly also enlisted Dave to join in abusing Kathy. Both of them would hit and slap her, drag her by her hair, and beat her with fists and with objects. She was a mess of cuts, scrapes, and bruises all the time. For added torture, Dave and Shelly would administer painful treatments to Kathy's wounds, rubbing bleach and salt into her cuts and scrapes. Sometimes Shelly would also force the children to abuse Kathy. She especially wanted Shane to do this, as he was bigger than the girls and could inflict more pain. None of the children wanted to take part in what felt like a nightmare which they couldn't escape. But to refuse their mother brought the wrath back on them, something they wanted to avoid at all costs. It was a catch-22 situation. Either feel horribly guilty and sick with shame for assaulting a person so traumatized at this point she couldn't fight back, or be subjected to pain and degradation themselves. Shelley could both physically and psychologically abuse her family members, even when it seemed they were being spared. Kathy became terrified of Shane, for which he felt ashamed. He did what Shelley demanded of him, but never used his full strength, trying to spare her. Shelley played sick mind games on Kathy, enlisting her nephew to kick and punch her, and afterward, Shelley would be the one to console her, holding her while she cried, telling her she loved her, and promising to keep her safe. Kathy would sob and accept Shelley's hugs like a broken child. 
After more than four years with the Notex, Kathy's will was completely beaten out of her. By 1994, she was a shell of her former self. In one particularly horrifying incident the Notech girls vividly describe in Greg Olson's book, If You Tell, Shelley, angered by something or another, marched Kathy outside into the snow to administer her punishment. Kathy was completely nude, and temperatures were freezing. Along with Dave, Shelley pushed Kathy up a snowbank, made her sit on the frozen ground at the top of the hill, and then forced her to slide down the icy embankment repeatedly on her bottom. This went on for hours. Shane and the girls could no longer stomach watching Kathy cry, beg, and plead with them, while Dave and Shelley yelled at her and threatened worse if she stopped. The next morning, Sammy would later recall what they found behind the house. Quote, We all went out there in the morning, me, my sister, Shane. The snow was all bloody and red all the way down the hillside, like a big red stripe. The children would all be traumatized by what they witnessed and the fact that they could do nothing to stop it. Nor did they really want to. As Nikki later admitted, quote, As long as Mom was punishing Kathy, she was ignoring us. As sick as that was, and we knew it at the time, we were glad. We were glad Mom wasn't doing this to us. During the years Kathy lived with the Notex and was subjected to ongoing abuse, she dropped over 100 pounds, lost teeth, and what was left of her once beautiful thick brown hair, Shelley chopped it off repeatedly, was falling out in clumps. Before she became so sick and broken she could no longer attempt it, Kathy did try to run away and escape the abuse. But Shelley never let anyone escape her control. From the time of her marriage to Randy, whenever anyone tried to leave her, she would hunt them down, never giving up until she found them, and cajoled, threatened, or forced them to return. People would describe Shelley as almost giddy when she was stalking someone. She seemed to enjoy the chase immensely, as if it gave her some type of high. Kathy, already sick and weakened, was no match for Shelley. Everyone under the control of Shelley Notek, her daughters, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori, and even her husband, Dave, had been abused for so long they no longer had any free will and believed there was no hope for escape. Everyone was living in a nightmare and just struggling to survive, both physically, emotionally, and mentally, while living in Shelley's cruel kingdom. But as bad as things had been up until this point, they were about to get much, much worse. Shelley's unrelenting need to hurt everyone around her had begun when she was just a girl, but now, feeling her power over all those under her roof, caused her to become even more reckless. Her violence, now unchecked, would soon spill over into homicide. And after she had one murder under her belt, it became easier to cross that line again and again. That will do it for part one of The Ties That Bind, The Crimes of Shelley Notech. Part two will be released next Monday, April 18th. If you're a Patreon member, you can listen to part two now, ad-free. To become a Patreon member and get early release ad-free episodes every week, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime was written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. Additional writing help for this episode was provided by Jessica Keaton, and additional research provided by Susie St. John. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. CrimeCon is just about two weeks away. I hope to see you in Las Vegas on April 29th. To find out more and get tickets, go to CrimeCon.com and use my discount code ONCEUPON22 to save 10%. And I'll see you in Vegas, baby! Until next time, 
Be good to one another.